dismiss our kiddos to uh, children's ministry, and if you want to open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This is going to be a, a uh, saw-sharpening sermon. Um, I don't know if you've ever read the book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Not, not endorsing the book, but a lot of you have read it. And uh, I think on chapter 7 or so, uh, the story is communicated of a man uh, who's in the woods, and he's sawing a tree down. And someone walks up to him and says, well, you look like you're tired. And he said, yeah, I've been, I've been sawing this tree for, for five hours. And the guy said, you know, maybe you should take a break and sharpen the saw. And the man said, well, I don't have time to take a break and sharpen the saw. I'm too busy sawing the tree. And uh, Abraham Lincoln, who was the last honest politician out of Illinois, uh, I was thinking about him this week. He, he said, and this is something he spoke, for, he spoke from, from knowledge. He said, give me six hours to chop down a tree, and I will spend the first four sharpening the axe. Well, you know, every week you're faithful to come to be here. You're faithful to gather. You, over a lifetime, are investing a great deal of time, a great deal of important time, right? The right smack dab in the middle of your weekend. You're investing time to come here. We're investing time to be here. A lot is going into making it possible for us to gather. A lot of preparation is going in on the worship side, on the sermon side, and many other things. Let's make sure, as we gather, that we're mindful of, uh, of, of really high ambitions for this gathering, that we, are, that we are hopeful and mindful of all that God wants to do through this time. I told you last week that we were going to be done discussing Pentecost, and I had a whole sermon written that you'll hear next week. Uh, on Friday morning, I uh, finished the sermon, took a, took a walk, and thought, I missed this major thing in this Pentecost passage that is really important for our congregation to hear, especially in this particular time as God is working. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll go back and write a new sermon, Lord. So that's what I've done. Hopefully you can't tell that it was written in a day and a half. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe you can. But what I want to talk about this morning is the Holy Spirit's role in corporate speech. So what I mean by that is, is that congregational speech during the service. And what I'm referring to here is you see this, this microphone standing here, and it's sort of like, well, what's this for? Why is it there? So on and so forth. Well, I want to talk today about, um, about Pentecost and what has traditionally been referred to in Sovereign Grace Circles as the prophecy mic. And uh, first thing I want to do is just say that that was a, a phrase that was used early on in Sovereign Grace. Uh, some of you have used that phrase uh, as you've thought about this, that's what this is. This is a prophecy mic. I, I'm i not about changing every little phrase we can. Uh, you can call it community groups, you can call it core groups, you can call it whatever. Um, but in this particular case, I do believe that prophecy mic is the wrong word for it. I think contribution mic is the better word for it. Mostly because I think what happens here isn't always, or perhaps even often, prophecy. You know, everybody goes into um, this question of what a prophecy is with different definitions, and some have a very narrow definition. They're like, man, if you are not wearing, if you're not wearing some funky clothes and like standing in the desert predicting the end times, you're not prophesying, right? Um, others would say that almost anything is is prophecy. Some people have a very narrow definition. Some people have a very broad definition. 
But if you're really trying to be biblical, I don't think you'd want to stick to the word prophecy and exclude all the other things that can be done at this microphone as well. Um, I made a list. It's not a it's not by any means a comprehensive list, but I just made a list of some of the areas of biblical speech. And I've got that slide up here. I don't, I don't know exactly where it is in the deck, Miss Enderby, but I think it's in there somewhere. Um, again, this is not an exhaustive list, but here's some things I was thinking about that, that we could see happen here. We could see prayer and encouragement and exhortation, evangelism. 1 Corinthians 14 talks about the utterance of wisdom. Sorry, that's 1 Corinthians 12. The utterance of wisdom, the, the utterance of knowledge. We could see prophecy. We could see testimony. We could see praise. We could see thanksgiving. We could see confession. And theoretically speaking, we would be open to seeing all of those things take place. We would be open and, and excited about seeing the congregation participate in the worship service, engaged in any number of those things. And I didn't even mention what I think is the first one and the go-to one, and that is simply to read Scripture. So I think the phrase contribution, Mike, makes more sense only because much of what will happen here, Lord willing, will not be, in anyone's definition, prophecy. Much of what will happen here is just people sharing the good news of Jesus, the word of God, encouragements, and so on and so forth. Uh, The Holy Spirit is at work in all of these, and that's why I think it makes sense to talk about this now as we consider this text in Pentecost. Because what Pentecost is, most fundamentally, is the Holy Spirit giving utterance to people uh, for the good of others. Right? That's the most basic kind of formula of what Pentecost is. The Holy Spirit giving words to people for the good of others. And so this text helps us, I think, think through some of the basics about what does it look like to go into a worship service knowing that the congregation itself, not just the people who get paid to talk, Right? Not the people who have a title in the church, but what does it look like to attend a church knowing that the congregation itself has a role to play in speaking to one another, both privately and publicly? You know, As I was thinking about all this, I was reminded about all the reasons why people don't do it. If you go to the average church in America, this is not going to be an option for you. Uh, most churches are not going to have the option for uh, corporate involvement at this level. And, and there are a number of really good reasons why, right? <laughs> um, I just listed a few, and this will prove to you that the alliteration thing isn't isn't polished. This is actually how my brain works. I didn't I didn't try. I just listed a few. They all wound up with T's. Um, the first one is time. I, I don't think it's always obvious how much pressure those who are bringing the service together feel related to time. Culturally speaking, the days of two-hour worship services are past for most white folks, especially, you know, middle American white folks, right? There's, we used to go to services in East St. Louis, where, where, close to where Angela and I lived, and it wasn't that unusual to be in a two- or three-hour service. But culturally speaking, we can't go there. We're, we're just not there. Now, you can, you can come back with all of your idealism and so on, and I would say, that's wonderful, let me know when you're leading a church, and we could talk about it. Um, there are time constrictions. You know, we did a family-integrated methodology at uh, Crosshaven, where we kept, for the most part, almost all of our kids in the worship service. You know, that doesn't make it any easier. 
Time becomes even more of an issue then, but it's an issue even now with our children's ministry. So one of the reasons why you don't see active involvement at that level is because there are real time restraints. We've got a lot to fit in that we know God's called us to, and it's like, well, gosh, you know, can we fit this in too? Uh, another reason uh, why people are, are uh, slow to, to move in this direction, I think, is transitions. It is difficult to know how to fit contributions from the congregation into the service in a way that doesn't feel disjointed. Unfortunately, again, culturally, many visitors are, are, are thinking that production value equals the presence of God. Right? Unfortunately, that's, that's, that's nine times out of ten when someone's coming that I love, by the way. I want them at my church. I want an opportunity to walk with them. But nine times out of ten, they're walking in with, with an equation that says something like production value equals presence of God. I want them to grow out of that. I don't want to cater to that, but I want to acknowledge that's where people are and walk with them through that process. Transitions, even for the most spiritually mature among you, transitions from one song to the next and from one component of the service to the next really do affect your ability to stay plugged in to the moment. We're just human beings. We all have really pathetic 21st century attention spans, uh, even those of you who are homeschooled. And because uh, and, you've read more books, that's all I'm saying. Um, we all have these, 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 these flea-like attention spans. Transitions really do matter. And, and it's difficult to walk people through that aren't thinking at that level because that's not what you're here for. You're not here to think through transitions. But it's difficult because there's, there's a, an unequal yoking there. Uh, number three, teaching. Uh, the elders explicitly in Scripture, are entrusted after a great deal of testing uh, and, and looking under the hood uh, of, uh, of their lives, they're entrusted to teach. And um, when you have this available, and you're asking anyone in the church to participate in this, the line between contrib- contributing and teaching is a difficult line to know where we are. Right? It's, it's not always easy to know where we stand in that issue. Um, you know, I, I mentioned this already, but just attention span. It is really hard to get people to, if you're trying to push in one direction corporately, and you're trying to say, let's really focus on hospitality, right? Or let's really focus on, and you've spent all week crafting your songs and crafting your sermon to really get people, you know, to herd the cats in one direction, it's, it's scary to think that you're surrendering all of that preparation to someone who wasn't involved in any of that preparation and may uh, distract people from heading in, a, in the direction you're pretty sure God wants you to. Uh, the biggest reason I think that people don't do this more often is just because of trust. I think that, that there's just a lot of trust that's needed on both sides of the equation to engage in this. But most importantly, uh, we should never, and this is just... This is just true at, at every level of our lives. We should never think that trusting one another is a viable substitute for trusting God. Right? It's not really about me trusting you. It's not really about you trusting me. We trust God. And, and that's sort of missing oftentimes as we think through why we do what we do at the church service. Uh, I think one of the biggest reasons pastors fear engaging in this 
is because the more traffic you get where people are actually interested in contributing, the more rejections will be issued. So not every idea that someone has is a good one or the timely one or fitting into the moment. And it's still a pastor's responsibility, as I think we'll see as we move through the text. It's still a pastor's responsibility to sort through that. And I know lots of guys who love their people but think, man, I just don't think Bob can handle walking down down the aisle, talking to me, and then turning around and walking back. Rejected. You know, the walk of shame is what they used to call it. Mark, Mark Prater is the uh, executive director of Sovereign Grace, and he actively seeks to contribute in this way in his own church. And uh, he told a funny story. It's a large church, and he was up pretty high up in the, the rows, and he, uh, he and his wife were standing there worshiping, and he decided he had something he thought maybe he should share. And so he walks all the way down in front of this large church, talks to the senior pastor, um, and, uh, and the senior pastor says, you know, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think that's going to work. And so Mark <laughs> turns around and walks all the way up all the stairs and stands next to his wife, and his wife leans over and said, thanks for playing. So there's a trust issue involved on both sides. Uh, our policy, as I've, as I've come into this church, has just been, it's a gift that needs to be encouraged more than it's been. And so we'll get more picky later when we have to. You know, for right now, let's, 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 let's encourage participation, let's encourage involvement, and then we'll learn together how to discern as we, as we move through. So there are a lot of issues, a lot of reasons why this doesn't always feel like it should happen. Um, I think that, that it is easy in a church like this size to forget about guests and to start speaking Christianese. And you have to really discipline yourself. I have to really discipline myself not to do that, and I still fail all the time. So you, feel, you fear for that. You wonder, you know, if, if someone's going to come up and share, are they just going to go into this swamp of Christianese and the visitor who won't understand at all what's happening? So I've given you all these reasons why we shouldn't do it. Um, or why people don't do it, but I don't think any of them are reasons ultimately for not doing it. I think that the value that comes from engaging in this practice exceeds all of those possible expenses. Number one, I would say that there are all sorts of ways that we could get into trouble by practicing this, but I think if we're not practicing this, we're already in trouble. I think it's just a quieter trouble that doesn't get a lot of attention It's the sin of omission rather than a sin of commission. So that even though there are all sorts of ways we can get into trouble doing this, I think if we don't do this, we're already in trouble. The Bible's pretty clear. This should be a functional part of a gathering of believers. Even with all the mess involved, we have to decide to ultimately trust God and his word. Trusting God and trusting God's word doesn't mean everything works out really well. It means we're trusting God and his word. And he will take care of us. The Bible seems to prescribe this. I think, we, you, I think most biblical scholars could say this. It would be a foreign concept for the New Testament churches to be divided so simply between speaker and audience. That's, that doesn't seem to be at all baked into the New Testament. It seems far more interactive, far more community-based, and so on. Now, having said all that, I want to read... Acts, uh, a few passages in Acts 2 to you, and I want to point out three things. Number one, I want you to see how the speech comes from the Spirit. Number two, I want you to see how the Spirit 
gives that speech for the good of others. And number three, I won't read the text. I just want to make this point. There's 120 people in this upper room. And they are all being filled with the Spirit. And they're speaking the mighty works of God, the text says. The Holy Spirit's giving them testimony, encouragement, you know, exhortation. They're speaking the mighty works of God. But as after all that said and done, they still need a guy to get up and preach a sermon. Right? And you still need a guy to get up and sort of explain and process all that stuff that just happened. That's Peter. So I'm not saying that for the sake of job security. By the way, <laughs> I'm not saying, don't think you can do this without me because you still need it. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that God has both in his church. He has both. And they both do good in this text. So first of all, this idea that this kind of, that, that the Holy Spirit could actually give someone stuff to say. Um, it's right there in our text, verse 4. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. Other, in this particular case, it means languages. In other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Um, so that's the idea that it's from the Spirit. You see that? They were filled with the Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Spirit's giving them things to say. By the way, that could be said of any of those things on my list. The Spirit gives us things to say for encouragement. The Spirit gives us things to pray. The Spirit gives us things to testify or to confess. Again, broad category here. So this is all coming from the Spirit. And secondly, it's issued, it's, it's, it's going for the good of others. Uh, Acts 2.11, the people that hear this are saying, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? So a couple points about this. Uh, so you see that it's from the Spirit, and you see that it's for the good of others. They're proclaiming the mighty works of God. Other people are hearing those, and they're being led to these questions, these very important, helpful questions about who God is, about what God's doing, so on and so forth. First point I would make about as we're processing how to do this First point I would make is I want you to notice how it was understandable, but not unscoffable. And I made up a word just like that. It was understandable, meaning people knew what was being said. They, they heard the mighty works of God, but it wasn't unscoffable. I think what I'm trying to say there is it wasn't seeker sensitive in the fullest sense of the word, where there was no possible way for someone to look at it and make fun of it. Because part of what it means to like obey God is to be willing to be made fun of for obeying God. They, they, they scoffed. They said, they said, well, they were amazed and perplexed. But then in verse 13, they say, they're just drunk. Right? So it's understandable, but not so utterly um, simple that it doesn't invite people, sinners, from saying, y'all are crazy. Right? I, I, I'm not trying, I don't think we're trying to be uh, above reproach on the crazy claim. I think we understand that the, that the message of the cross is foolishness for those who are perishing. So we want to be, in everything we do, especially in this time, we want to be understandable but not unscoffable. We know that's not going to be possible. And if we ever tried to aim to make everyone think we were totally reasonable, we would be far afield of Jesus 
who they also thought was crazy, right? I also want to be uh, clear that weakness will always be criticized and misunderstood because no one in their right mind pursues weakness except those who are following Jesus, right? And, and these people were weak. This wasn't this... Wasn't this this was the spirit using them. And I, and I finally, I just follow up and say, leadership still plays an important role. Peter still has to filter all of this and communi- re-communicate it, reinterpret it through the scriptures, and then, uh, and then seal the deal, I guess you could say. Call, call the people to, to action. I want to take you to a couple other verses, and I want you to see how Jesus thought about the Holy Spirit specifically in, in the way he thought about the Holy Spirit related to speech. Okay, So I'm going to take you through some of Jesus' teachings about the Holy Spirit real quick. Um, in Luke 12, 11, Jesus says, When you are brought before the synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how to defend yourselves or what to say. See, uh, Jesus is anticipating that his followers will be persecuted. and He's saying, when they bring you into court, don't worry about what you'll say. For at that time, the Holy Spirit will teach you what you should say. And this is repeated in all the Gospels in one way or another, and it's repeated twice in Luke. Now, I don't believe that you should read that verse and say, you know what, if I ever get arrested for being a Christian, the Holy Spirit will teach me what to say, but until then, I'm on my own. I think he's reminding them of the basic principle at work, and that is, God will help you to say what you need to say. Not, uh, not saying, you know, in this very unique moment when you're arrested, then you'll have, I think you probably do have unique peace and unique clarity and unique help from the Lord in those moments. But I don't think he's saying you should only expect the Holy Spirit to speak to you then. I think he's saying, remember, this is what the Holy Spirit does. He gives you words to say. So I, I want to support that with another statement from Jesus. Uh, John fourteen twenty six. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. John sixteen thirteen. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. And he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So even as Jesus is communicating what the Holy Spirit does with speech, he's reminding us, the Holy Spirit's going to give you stuff. He's going to speak to you. You're going you're to hear God's voice. If you're a follower of Jesus, if, if, if you've been redeemed by what Jesus has done for you on the cross, and the Holy Spirit is, uh, is, is original equipment, right? This isn't, the, this isn't the added on package. This is, you get the Holy Spirit when you come to faith in Jesus, and the Holy Spirit will teach you and speak to you and help you to see what God wants you to see. Now he's doing that uh, not real, not not entirely, so that you just feel better. Right? I think that there's a, a a really scary tendency that I see where we're Instagramming our our, our faith to better to better health. Right? Like like we're we're taking verses like we're taking medicine, and we're, and that's fine. Except that just so we're clear, that stuff isn't just for you. Like it's. You may, you may feel terrible so that someone else may feel better, right? Like, like God's, God's at work in a much broader category than you feeling good. He's not indifferent to that, but he's at work in a much broader category than that. And ultimately, if you help someone else uh, down the road, you will feel 
you will feel better about your pain. So as God, as Jesus is communicating the Holy Spirit's purpose and what the Holy Spirit does, he, he always talks about out. He always says the Holy Spirit's coming down to you, but you need to let that flow out, right? We're, we're sort of like that lake halfway through a mountain's descent. You know, the water's coming off the mountain. We're there. We get blessed. We're the lake. But we have to have an outflow, right? We have to have somewhere that goes. So Jesus, when he talks about the Holy Spirit, always connects it to sharing, to speaking outward. John sixteen eight, when he comes, Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Matthew twenty eight nineteen, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. John fourteen fifteen, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. Acts one eight. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The idea here is the Holy Spirit's there to help you. Have something to say as you're called to go out into the world. Now, I got trapped on a meme wormhole earlier this week. Uh, and I'm just not cool enough or progressive enough to put memes up on the screen during worship service. Like, that's not me. I, I'm not there. Maybe I need to get there. Um, but, but, um, but I got on the, the, the meme track of uh, rich people problems. And they were great. Like, one of them was, like, finally found, like, it's got a really wealthy-looking woman, and the, the meme is, finally found a vending machine and only have a hundred. You know? Um, there was another one of a, of a nurse looking just upset, and, and just said, every time. And it shows her holding her glove, her, you know, the, the medical gloves, shows her holding her glove, and this huge ring cutting, slicing the, slicing the glove. Another one had a girl say, listen, I can't help it that I was born wealthy. Um, obviously, if I was born poor like you, I'd have a work ethic. You know. Um, so I got on this this wormhole, and, and I, I this has been a favorite subject of mine for some time because I think that Christians are so wealthy in Christ that I feel like so much of what we have to do in in the Christian life in a church is to figure out where to put all the goodness. You know, when I'm talking about time constraints, um, I'm talking about time constraints in, in worship service because there are so many good things to cram into this, and they're all good, and they're all beautiful, and they all have meaning, and they all have value. And we are not, um, we are not miserly, or we're not poor when it comes to all the riches we have in Christ. We just have so many great things. We have so many great things. And this whole idea... Um, speaking of memes, I think I posted on my Facebook page a while back, you know, um, there are things that you have that people are praying for and will never receive, right? Be grateful. Like we have so much and I'm not just talking about material things here. I'm talking about this idea that this, this, this part of our body, the tongue that gets us into all kinds of trouble and it doesn't do what we want it to when we want it to do it. I'm saying that, like, what, what an amazing gift that the God who created it has agreed to take it over, right? Has, has agreed to care for it, has agreed to cultivate it and teach it 
and make it useful and helpful. You know, that is so beautiful. That's so wonderful. And, it's, it's, and what's wonderful about it is, is that's not just one of us. If you're in Christ, that's you. You have that. That's happening in your life. Friends, I don't, I don't think you can probably understand how commonly something you say blesses someone else. That's not, by the way, a massive badge of honor to you or to the other person. You're not especially insightful, neither am I, and the other person isn't especially receptive. It's just, again, rich people problems. We have a God who works through us. We have a God who is so merciful and so faithful and so skilled that he can work through these broken instruments. And I just want you to think about the transformation that this can have on marriage. The transformation this can have on parenting. You know, there's so many areas in life where, where I don't know what to say or I just say the entirely wrong thing. There's still plenty of me behind the wheel of this this tongue. But even in those moments, God is faithful to take control eventually and give me a deep I'm sorry. To give me me words to say to bring reconciliation. And we're dependent on all of that. So the Holy Spirit's at work through our speech. We see that in Pentecost. We see that in Jesus' teachings. Now Paul... He is pastor of a New Testament church, of of multiple churches throughout his ministry, and he has to deal with the practicals. And a lot of the concerns about this are tied in with the practicals. So Paul, as he's writing to the churches that he's caring for, he's getting even more practical. And he's he's calling balls and strikes. He's saying this is kind of how we do this. So I'm going to read a few of his passages to you, but I, I still want you to hear... Three things, right? I still want you to hear the three things I've talked about. From the Spirit, for others, and there's leadership involved. And in this particular case, the leadership involved is Paul, right? He's, he's telling them kind of how this works. Um, let me just read to you 1 Corinthians 12. This is when Paul really begins to talk about this issue. He says in, in 12 verse 4, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these things are empowered by the one and same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The word give shows up a million times in that small section of Scripture, meaning this is all coming from him. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, and if you've been kind of in our... um, our theological playground, the stuff that the stuff that the kind of particulars of Reformed theology, so on and so forth, you know that the word gave is got kind of, as far as we can see, one serious intention, one serious motivation, and that is what? What is the word gave supposed to mean? It's supposed to tell you don't boast. It's a free gift. Don't boast. 
this isn't you. It's him. Don't boast. This, 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 is, this is the word gave is so essential. It's from God. Now, why do, I, why do I emphasize that to this degree? Because, like I said before, deciding to share something with someone else is almost certainly, I don't want to be that negative, very likely to lead to hurt feelings, to your hurt feelings, very possibly to lead to discouragement, um, very possibly... <laughs> to lead to the pastor who's kind of seeing through this to say, hey, you know, thank you, but I don't think that's for today. Now, you're going to know right then whether that was, whether, whether, what you were motivated by, right? Man, you ever wash the dishes? Like, just one time? If you've ever washed the dishes just one time, and you're like me, now, I'm, I'm growing, I'm growing, but if you, like the first few times you wash the dishes, it was really clear why you were washing those dishes, and it wasn't. There were not pure motives. Now, the reasons why the, the motives weren't pure is because if you if if it wasn't noticed, affirmed, and many other things for that brave act of dishwashing, your heart doesn't doesn't respond right. You don't you just don't feel good about suddenly this thing that you did with the noblest intentions turns out to not have had the noblest intentions. Emphasizing the given nature of this ministry of encouraging one another, of, of contributing, emphasizing the givenness of it is important to keep us from boasting in it. Right? Now, secondly, this idea of otherliness. It's for other people. Again, what does that do? It does the exact same thing. It emphasizes no boasting, no pride. It emphasizes humility. Are you doing this truly for building other people up? Well, I, I'm running out of time, and I, I don't want to go over on this particular subject. It's kind of thick, but I want to talk now about some practicals related to order. How does this work? Simply put, because these, this speech is from God, and because it's for other people, order is essential. Right? Because whatever comes from God is not chaotic, and chaos doesn't help people, right? Like, like we want to help people, and we want people to see that this is from God, and so order is of the utmost. Again, in 1 Corinthians, uh, this time chapter 14, Paul just talks about it this way. I think this is like, I couldn't make a better illustration. Obviously, this is inspired scripture. He says, if even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? So what we're, what we're not wanting to do is just to get up and say, look, I got a new saxophone for Christmas. I don't know how to play it, but listen, right? <laughs> that is not pleasing to anyone. If the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? Again, Paul's asking, are the, is what you're proposing to do helpful? Is it orderly? Is it clear? So with yourselves, if your tongue, with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? for you will be speaking into the air. And again, that may feel good to you, but if it's not helpful, it's just not helpful. There are doubtless many languages in the world, and none without meaning, but, I do, but if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So I've got four ideas related to orderliness, 
and they all start with C. And I'm going to be ultra cheesy and say that these are we're going to put the C in the contribution, Mike. Okay? All right. Yes. Yes. We're going to put the C in contribution. Number one, is it constructive? Like, is this... Is this actually meant to bless others? How will this how will this bless others? If it's difficult for you to imagine how it would bless others, it's probably not constructive. Um, secondly, um, is it composed? You know, there's nothing wrong with carefully weighing your words. I think we have bought into this lie that somehow speaking from the heart gives all the excuses for lack of skill. And that, you know, as long as you really mean what you say, it doesn't matter how badly you stumble over it. Well, I wish that was true. Um, but it's not true. How you say what you say matters a great deal. So this other sea of orderliness is, think through, weigh your words. How are you going to share this? How are you going to speak? What are you going to say? There's no problem taking time aside to more thoughtfully compose your words. Um, Number three, is it consistent? And this is, a, this is a really big deal. Is it consistent with the scriptures, right? Like, is this actually true? Is this consistent with what God teaches? Is it consistent with what God sees to be, seems to be doing in the service on this particular day? Um, is it consistent with the general themes of scripture? Is this love? Is this gentle? One of the things I put, uh, and I want to be super skilled, as way more skilled than I'm capable of in, in talking about this. Men, we believe that men should be leaders. Right? That's, we believe that's what the Bible teaches. We believe you should lead. If um, a very high percentage of people who share are not are women, then are we being consistent? And that wouldn't have anything to do with the women, right? That wouldn't have anything to do with them. That wouldn't have anything to do with, um, with, with whether they're obeying God or not, because I believe they are. What I think it points to is that someone else isn't. It's, it's the party I referred to earlier in the dishwashing illustration. Uh, we want to make sure, we want to make sure that we are thoughtful even at that level about this exercise. And we're asking our men to... To, 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 to be sensitive to the Spirit and to lead, right? So is it consistent? Is it constructive? Is it composed? And finally, is it cautious? Do you have, do you have the appropriate dosage of self-doubt? Do you have the uh, appropriate dosage of fear and trepidation? Now, I'll tell you, most of the time, that is not ever a problem. Most people that I've ever walked through with this, there's not, there is not a lot of bravado happening. Um. I want to tell you one of the reasons why I think. Why does God use this means so often? Because, man, he does. I'm telling you what, when, when God uses this, when, God, when this happens in a local church, God will really use it to bless people. It will be my uh, everlasting frustration and delight the number of times I'll walk out to the parking lot and realize that 15 hours of sermon prep was, you know, helpful. But so-and-so got up here and talked for two minutes, and it really, really blessed them. You know, why does God do that? You know, besides to just be mean to me. No, why, why does God do that? Well, friends, let me just be gut level true. Like, please hear this. God works through weakness. 
God works through weakness. God works through your fear, through your insecurities, even through your feelings that you are not worthy, that you are inconsistent, that you don't know how to do this, that you're afraid of messing up, that you're afraid of crossing a line. I haven't given any of these these boundaries to discourage anyone. Because the only way we learn is to fail. I would rather you exercise faith and trust God with your weakness than to have all of the boxes that I just listed checked. Because the reason this works, I'm convinced, is because God works through weakness. I'm not going to, I can't be as weak, week in and week out, because I do this all the time. And it shows, like it shows, like I want to be weak. I want to depend on the Lord. I want to be sensitive to the Spirit. I'm doing my best. But friends, it's just a different thing. When someone says, I have something I want to share. I'm scared to death. And I'm going to do it anyway. This morning in my uh, journal, I wrote, um, I don't remember the exact words, but I wrote, um, if God is giving it, then I want it. If God is not giving it, then I don't want it. I'm more concerned about whose hand is feeding me than what I'm actually being fed. I just want to stick here for a minute and expand and not just talk about contribution mic if God is giving it to me I want it even when it's hurtful even when it's mostly just questions that he's giving me even when it's painful even when it's scary when God is giving it I want it when God isn't giving it I don't want it, even when it makes me feel secure, even when it makes me feel strong and competent. When God isn't giving it, I don't want it, even when it makes me feel good. I am more concerned with the hand that is feeding me than with what I'm being fed. I want more of God. At some point in every church, the people who gather together week in and week out wind up sticking together because they've all agreed on what they're after. And there are churches that are after one thing and churches that are after another thing, churches that are after another thing. What I've tried to pitch to you from day one and what I'm after is I believe that I can experience God in this gathering in a way that I cannot experience him anywhere else. And I want us to show up every week with the idea that if God's giving something out, I want it. If God's told me to, that, that something special can happen here through a bunch of weak people, then I want to be here. Because if God is handing it out, 
then I want it. And if God's not handing it out, I don't. Let me pray. God, would you give us faith? This is just the beginning of a conversation about this particular issue, about this particular practice. We are going to have to learn and grow together, as is always the case in everything, Lord. We hold each other up. We, we, we counterbalance each other. So would you give us faith, Lord, to, to lean in? Um, for a number of reasons, some of which are just my sin, I don't, I don't have to rely on you to talk as much as I wish I did. I don't feel that I do. I do, but I don't feel that I do. God, there are people here who love you with every bit of their hearts or who are, who are struggling to love you, who are struggling to find the faith. People here who have read the word in the mornings and try to warm up to it. They're trying to warm themselves back up to life. They're people who are seeking you, people who are thinking about you and who are diligent in pursuing you. There are many Saints in this place, God, we are rich. Your spirit is at work in all of us who are in Christ, and we are rich. Would you please help us to know how to be rich in you? Would you please help us to know how to use um, and enjoy all that you would uh, give us, that your hand would feed us? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. For our communion, I want to read from Revelation 12. Um, It says, The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down to him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives, even to death. We celebrate this table as a reminder of Christ's blood shed for the sins of those who needed to be saved, everyone. Of Christ's body given for everyone who needs to be saved. Christ offered his perfect righteousness for our sake so that we could be brought to God and we could begin to experience this life in God that includes him working in our midst and in our speech. We have a role to play in that great process. We will overcome through Christ, um, through the blood of the Lamb and through the word of our testimony. So if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, I just want this table to be a, a touch point for you as it is every week to say, man, I'm a rich kid. Man, I'm blessed. Man, I'm full of good things because of the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Let this time be a celebration of his grace to you.